Alright folks, I'm going to read from Mr. Carl Jung's book called Psychology and the East. Alright, <coughs> I'm going to read um, the chapter, The Dreamlike World of India. Alright. The first impression of a country is very often like meeting a person for the first time. Your impression may be quite inaccurate, even definitely wrong in many respects. Yet you are lively, sorry, yet you are likely to perceive certain qualities or certain shadows which would very probably be blurred by the more accurate impressions of a second or third visit. My reader would make a great mistake if he were to take any statements I make about India for gospel truth. Think of a man coming to Europe for the first time in his life. He spends some six to seven weeks traveling from Lisbon to Moscow and from Norway to Sicily. He does not understand a single European language except English, and he has a most superficial knowledge of the peoples their history and their actual life. Would he be likely to produce anything more than a mild, mildly delirious phantasmagoria of hasty impressions, snapshot sentiments, and impatient opinions? I am afraid he would have little chance of escaping the charge of utter incompetence and inadequacy. I am very much in the same position in daring to say anything about India. I am told that I have the excuse of being a psychologist and therefore I am supposed to see more <laughs> or at least something peculiar which other fellows might be expected to overlook. I do not know. I must leave the final verdict to my reader. The flat expanse of Bombay and its low dark green hills rising almost suddenly above the horizon give you the feeling of the vastness of the continent behind. This impression explains my first reaction directly. I disembarked. I took a car and went out of town away into the country. That felt a great deal better. Yellow grass, dusty fields, native huts, great dark green weird banyan trees, sickly palmyra palms sucked dry of their life juice. It is run into bottles near the top to make palm wine, which I never tasted. Emaciated cattle, thin-legged men, the colorful saris of women, all in leisurely haste or in hasty leisure, with no need of being explained or of explaining themselves, because obviously they are what they are. <clears throat> They were unconcerned and unimpressed. I was the only one who did not belong to India. We drove through a strip of jungle near Blue Lake. We pulled up suddenly, but instead of having run over a lurking tiger, we found ourselves in the midst of a native movie scene. Something presumably was going to happen to a white girl dressed up, at, dressed up as a domptoose escaped from a circus. Cameras, megaphone, and excited shirt sleeves were in full action. The shock was so great that we instinctively stepped on the gas. After this, I felt that I could go back to the city, which I had not yet really seen. 
The Anglo-Indian style of architecture of the past 50 years is not interesting, but it gives a peculiar character character to Bombay. Bombay is is basically Mumbai now. As if one had already seen it somewhere else. It had more to do with the English character than with India. I make an exception of the gateway of India, that huge portal at the head of the Royal Road to Delhi. In a way, it repeats the splendid ambition to be found in the in the Gate of Victory, built by Akbar the Great in Fatehpur Sikri, that soon deserted town lying in ruins, red sandstone glowing in the Indian sun for long centuries, past and to come, a wave that crashed on the shore of time and left a strip of foam. That is India as I saw her. Certain things last forever, yellow plains, green spirit trees, dark brown boulders of gigantic size, emerald green watered fields, crowned by that metaphysical fringe of ice and rock away up north, that inexplorable, inexorable barrier beyond human conception. The other things unroll like a film, unimaginably, unimaginably rich in color and shape, ever-changing, lasting a few days or a few centuries, but essentially transitory, dreamlike, a multicolored veil of Maya. Today it is the still youthful British Empire that is going to leave a mark on India, like the Empire of the Mughals, like Alexander the Great, like numberless dynasties of native kings, like the Aryan invaders, Yet India somehow never changes her majestic face. Human life appears to be curiously, curiously flimsy in every respect. The native town of Bombay seems to be a jumble of incidentally piled up human habitations. The people carry on an apparently meaningless life, eagerly, busily, noisily. They die and are born in ceaseless waves, always much the same, a gigantic monotony of endlessly repeated life. In all that flimsiness and vain tumult, one is conscious of immeasurable age with no history. After all, why should there be recorded history? One thing I would like to add is... History in... In the West, like he just said, after all, why should there be recorded history? So, from my experience, it's like in the West, you read about history, learn about history that's, you know, from the past. And then, you know, maybe you can visit those places and, you know, see some archaeology or whatever. But when it comes to... When it comes to the East, from what I have noticed from my own travels, is not just the East, all around the world, just, I guess, a certain way you live your life, is is people keep doing what they have been doing for thousands of years, thousands of generations. In certain places in the world, history is alive with the present, because, because... they are living it instead of writing it down in a book and like having this completely so from from what i experience it's like 
it's, it's history is alive right in front of your eyes because these people are doing and living and breathing life the way their ancestors did for thousands of years. Okay, in a country like India, one does not really miss it. All her native greatness is in any case anonymous and impersonal, like the greatness of Babylon and Egypt. History makes sense in European countries, where in a relatively recent, barbarous, and unhistorical past, things began to take shape. Castles, temples, and cities were built, roads and bridges were made, and the peoples discovered that they had names, that they lived somewhere, that their cities multiplied, and that their world grew bigger every century. When they saw that things developed, they naturally became interested in the changes of things, and it seemed worthwhile to record beginnings and later developments, for everything was going somewhere, and everybody hoped for unheard of possibilities and improvements in the future, spiritual as well as secular. But in India, there seems to be nothing that has not lived a hundred thousand times before. Yeah, we are patterns, we are energy, we are archetypes. We are puppets for the archetypes. And this is what I'm saying. There was this channel on YouTube. It was something... It was, it was, it was, it was meanings for certain words that uh, don't exist in the English language. So... Uh, there was this one video this guy had done, if I find out, I'll link it, um, of how, with because of social media, when we look at certain pictures from certain places, it's like everybody goes through these same experiences, everybody takes the same pictures, the same selfies. It's like, we, we are not, <laughs> we are patterns. Okay, we are energy and patterns. Okay, let me just keep reading. Okay, um, but in, yeah, but in India, there seems to be nothing that has not lived a hundred thousand times before. Even the unique individual of today has already lived innumerable times in past ages. The world itself is nothing but a renewal of world existence, which has happened many times before. Even India's greatest individual, the unique Gautama Buddha, Buddha was preceded by more than a score of other Buddhas, and it is still not the last. You know, one interesting thing with the word Buddha, if you go to Australia, the Aborigines will kind of call themselves Buddhas, Buddhas. So they're trying to say, bro like, I'm assuming they're saying brother, but they, they say it Buddha, like Buddha. And it's, and it's spelled almost the same way as Buddha. Just saying. No wonder, then, that the gods, too, have their numerous avatars. And also, uh, isn't it interesting that the Aborigines of Australia have their whole concept of dream time? Sounds <laughs> very much like Maya. They have a rainbow serpent. It's, okay. No wonder, then, that the gods, too, have their numerous avatars. Plus... Okay, what? Why any history under such circumstances? Moreover, time is relative. The yogi sees the past as well as the future. If you walk the noble eightfold path, you will remember that what you were 10,000 lives ago. Space is relative. The yogi walks in his spirit body with the speed of thought over lands, seas, and heavens. Sounds like a fucking shaman. 
What you call real, all the good and ill of human life, is illusion. What you call unreal, sentimental, grotesque, obscene, monstrous, blood-curling gods, unexpectedly, unexpectedly becomes self-evident reality when you listen for half a hot night of an incessant, clever drumming that shakes up the dormant solar plexus of the European. Drumming, isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting how in India during the puja time, especially during the Kali puja time, the drumming is just bonkers, man. That shit, that was the original EDM, the original, that was it, man. Okay, the original bass and uh, drum, okay. He is used to regarding his head as the only instrument for grasping the world, and the katakali, as he follows it with his eyes, would remain a grotesque dance were it not for the drumming that creates a new reality rising from the bowels. Using sound to raise your consciousness, the shamans use their drum, which they call a horse, which is a symbol for their mind. The human mind. <laughs> is the is the human mind your head is the uh what the fuck was the spaceship in Star Trek? That they would s travel in the speed of life? Okay. A walk through the bustle of Bombay's bazaars set me thinking. I had felt the impact of the dreamlike world of India. I am convinced that the average Hindu does not feel his world as dreamlike. Yeah, I agree. I, I've experienced this myself when other Europeans or whatever foreigners came to India and experienced India. They have this sort of dreamlike experience. I'm... Okay, on the contrary, his every reaction shows how much he's impressed and gripped by its realities. If he were not enthralled by his world, he would not need his religious and philosophic teaching about the great illusion, any more than we ourselves would need the Christian message of love if we were other than we are. The essence of teaching is to convey knowledge of things about which we know too little. Perhaps I myself had been thrown into a dreamlike state by moving among fairy tale figures of the thousand and one nights. My own world of European consciousness had become peculiarly thin, like a network of telegraph wires high above the ground, stretching in straight lines all over the surface of an earth, looking treacherously like a geographic globe. I will tell you, it's quite a bit of a shock at first because there's just it's a it's a overload of the senses. There's just so much going on around you all at once that at first you might not be ready. Okay, it is quite possible that India is the real world and that the white man lives in a madhouse of abstractions. I am gonna fucking quote that again <laughs> this is Carl Jung it is quite possible that India is the real world and that the white man lives in a madhouse of abstractions it's so poetic he's so poetic too <laughs> to be born to die to be sick greedy dirty childish ridiculously vain miserable hungry vicious 
to be manifestly stuck in illiterate unconsciousness, to be suspended in a narrow universe of good and evil gods, and to be protected by charms and healthful mantras. That is perhaps the real life, life as it was meant to be, the life of the earth. Life in India has not yet withdrawn into the capsule of the head. Let me repeat that. Life in India has not yet withdrawn into the capsule of the head. I mean, literally, they're trying to stick our fucking heads into a VR headset now so that legit they can suck our fucking energy out of us. Your attention is your energy, stupid. It's about your attention. That's all. Milking your attention any way possible. Okay. Life in India has not yet withdrawn into the capsule of the head. In the West, everybody's talking about depression. The DSM is full of demons and it keeps growing. The DSM is the Bible for demons. <laughs> okay. Now look. I say... All this depression is not a head problem, it's a heart problem. It's because the head has become detached from the heart. You cannot live in a fantasy world and then expect reality not to act the way it does. You can't walk into a brick wall and expect it not to hurt. That's why they're trying to stick our heads into a VR set so that, I mean, you've seen the videos, right? These fucking idiots on the VR headsets playing their games and walking into shit, right? That's the legit image. <laughs> the heart and the head has been disconnected. And the head has to be humbled. So it listens to the heart again. That's all. It is still the whole body that lives. No wonder the European feels dreamlike. The complete life of India is something of which he merely dreams. When you walk with naked feet, how can you ever forget the earth? It needs all the acrobatics of the higher yoga to make you unconscious of the earth. One would need some sort of yoga if one tried seriously to live in India. But I did not see one European in India who really lived there. They were all living in Europe, that is, in a sort of bottle filled with European air. <laughs> Fuck, man. Fuck! They are all living in Europe, that is, in a sort of bottle filled with European air. That's Ukraine right now. The Ukraine tragedy, the Ukraine display of pure racism, Hitler would have been fucking proud. They were all living in Europe. That is, in a sort of bottle filled with European air. One would surely go under without the insulating glass wall. One would be drowned in all the things which we Europeans have conquered in our imagination. In India, they become formidable realities directly you step beyond the glass wall. <laughs> all these Western intellectuals, why don't you go test your ideas in India? <laughs> Northern India is characterized by the fact that it is part of the immense Asiatic continent. I noticed a frequent note of harshness in the way the people talk to each other, recalling harassed camel drivers or irritable horse dealers. The variety of Asiatic costumes here supersedes the immaculate whiteness of the mild plant eaters. 
Women's dresses are gay and provocative. Gay here means happy. I'm assuming that's what it means. <laughs> the many, <laughs> the many Patans, proud, unconquered, sorry, unconcerned and ruthless, and the bearded Sikhs, with their contradictory character, over-masculine brutality combined with melting sentimentality, give a strong Asiatic tinge to the appearance of the masses. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... The Sikhs are like the toughest looking motherfuckers, but they're like the nicest people, man. <laughs> okay. The architecture shows clearly how much the Hindu element has succumbed to the predominating Asiatic influence. Even the temples of Benares are small and not very impressive if it were not for their noisiness and dirt. Shiva the destroyer and the bloodthirsty and blood-curdling Kali seem to be in the foreground. The fat, elephant-headed Ganesha is also much in demand to bring good luck. In comparison, Islam seems to be a superior, more spiritual, and more advanced religion. Its mosques are pure and beautiful and, of course, wholly Asiatic. This is just uh, Jung's opinion, okay? I'm not... This is, this is just his opinion from his perspective, okay? Just... It's different now, but okay. There is not much mind about it, but a great deal of feeling. The cult is one wailing outcry for the all-merciful. It is a desire, an ardent longing, and even greed for God. I would not call it love. But there is love, the most poetic, most exquisite love of beauty in these old Mughals. The Mughals are the Mongols. In a world of tyranny and cruelty, a heavenly dream crystallized in stone, the Taj Mahal. I cannot conceal my unmitigated admiration for this supreme flower, for this jewel beyond price, and I marvel at that love which discovered the genius of Shah Jahan and used it as an instrument of self-realization. This is the one place in the world where the alas all too invisible and all too jealously guarded beauty of the Islamic Eros has been revealed by a well-nigh divine miracle. It is the delicate secret of the rose gardens of Shiraz and of the silent patios of Arabian palaces torn out of the heart of a great lover by a cruel and incurable loss. The mosques of the Mughals and their tombs may be pure and austere, their divans or audience halls may be of impeccable beauty, but the Taj Mahal is a revelation. It is thoroughly un-Indian. It is more like a plant that could thrive and flower in the rich Indian earth as it could nowhere else. It is Eros in its purest form. Wow. Did you ever know Jung? Compared the Taj Mahal to Eros, it is Eros in its purest form. There is nothing mysterious, nothing symbolic about it. It is the sublime expression of human love for a human being. Wow, so you can say Jung really liked the Taj Mahal. Okay. On the same plains of northern India, almost 2,000 years before the time of the Mughals, the spirit of India had borne its ripest fruit, the very essence of its life, the perfect Lord Buddha.
See, this is where I also, okay, just one thing where Jung was saying, basically, he was comparing the Shiva and Kali to, and, and Ganesha, and then to Islam, and then to the Mughals. So, like, he, see, this is, this is the thing with the Western, with the Western way of looking at things. Something has to be better for them. Something has to be better. So, hence, this whole psychology of dominating other people but i i look at all these three things three examples and i'm like these are all expressions of different hmm, different spectrums of consciousness like kali in metaphysical in the metaphysical sense is she is time itself I mean, you can't get more deeper than that, man. Like, Kali is time itself, okay? So, if if you're going to compare stuff without, you know, come on, man. Like, getting into the core foundational meaning behind it and just compare the outside manifestation of it. I mean, I'm, that's fine. I'm not saying the Taj Mahal is, is, is ugly or is... I'm not saying that. I'm just saying both have their place, man. Like, one doesn't have to be better. But, like, all all this is an, is a manifestation and expression of the of consciousness, of the soul. So it's like, why does one have to be better? This is This is what the thing was with Christianity is, like, you can be a Christian, but you have to believe our ideas. You have to you have to only wear our sunglasses, our perspective sunglasses. That's So this but this is what I'm saying. It's like but that's not how reality works though. Okay. It is eros in its purest form. There's nothing mysterious, nothing symbolic about it. It is the sublime expression of human love for a human being. On the same plains of northern India, almost 2,000 years before the time of the Mughals, the spirit of India had borne its ripest fruit, the very essence of its life, the perfect Lord Buddha. Not very far from Agra, the Agra and Delhi is the hill of Sanchi with, with its famous stupa. We were there on a brisk morning. The intense light and the extraordinary clarity of the air brought out every detail. There... On the top of a rocky hill with a distant view over the plains of India, you behold a huge globe of masonry half buried in the earth. According to the Mahaparinibha Sutta, Buddha himself indicated the way in which his remains were to be buried. He took two rice bowls and covered the one with the other. The visible stupa is just the bowl on top. One has to imagine the lower one buried in the earth. The roundness, a symbol of perfection since olden days, seems a suitable as well as an expressive monument for the Tathagata. It is of immense simplicity, austerity, and lucidity perfectly in keeping with the simplicity, austerity, and lucidity of Buddha's teaching. There is something unspeakably solemn about this place in its exalted loneliness as if it were still witnessing the moment in the history of India when the greatest genius of her race formulated her supreme t truth. 
This place, together with its architecture, its silence, and its peace beyond all turmoils of the heart, its very forgetfulness of human emotions, is truly and essentially Indian. It is as much the secret of India as the Taj Mahal is the secret of Islam. And just as the perfume of Islamic culture still lingers in the air, so Buddha, though forgotten on the surface, is still the secret breath of life in modern Hinduism. He is, he is suffered at least to be an avatar of Vishnu. Traveling with the British delegates to the Indian Science Congress in Calcutta, I was hustled through a good many dinners and receptions. I had a chance at these to talk to educated Indian women. This was a novelty. Their costume stamps them as women. It is the most becoming, the most stylish, and at the same time the most meaningful dress ever devised by women. I hope fervently that the sexual disease of the West, which tries to transform woman into a sort of awkward boy, will not creep into India in the wake of that fad scientific education. Let me repeat this. This is Carl Jung. I fervently hope I hope fervently that the sexual disease of the West, which tries to transform woman into a sort of awkward boy, will not creep into India in the wake of that fad scientific education. It would be a loss to the whole world if the Indian woman should cease to wear her native costume. I think uh, I think um, Carl Jung liked like those saris that they wore. India, and perhaps China, which I do not know, is practically the only civilized country where one can see on living models how women can and should dress. Damn. I think Mr. Young liked... Okay. The costume of... <laughs> the costume of the Indian woman conveys far more than the meaningless half-nakedness of the Western woman's evening dress. There is something left which can be unveiled or revealed. And on the other hand, one's taste is not offended by the sight of aesthetic flaws. The European evening dress is one of the most obvious symptoms of our sexual morbidity. It is compounded of, of shamelessness, exhibitionism, impotent provocation, and a ridiculous attempt to make the relation between the sexes cheap and easy. Damn. Yet, everybody is or ought to be profoundly aware of the fact that the secret of sexu sexual attraction is neither cheap nor easy but is one of the demons which no scientific education has yet mastered. Women's fashions with us are mostly invented by men. You can guess the result. <laughs> Damn. After having exhausted all the means of producing the semblance of a fertile brood mare with corsets and bustles, they are now trying to create the adolescent hermaphrodite and athletic semi-masculine body despite the fact that the body of the northern woman already has a plain painful tendency toward bony coarseness they try co-education in order to make the sexes equal to each other instead of stressing the difference but the worst sight oh is the woman in trous trousers trousers parading the decks I often wondered if they knew how mercilessly ugly they looked. 
Usually, they were very decent middle-class types and were not smart at all, but only touched by the current rage for hermaphroditis, hermaphroditosis. It is a sad truth, but the European women, in particularly her hopelessly wrong dress, put up no show at all when compared with the dignity and elegance of the Indian woman and her costume. Even fat women have a chance in India. With us, they can only starve themselves to death. This is uh, Carl Jung, okay? I am not... This is... I'm just reading the book, okay? I mean, this was a long time ago, so... Yeah, okay. Talking of costumes, I must say that the Hindu man is too fond of ease and coolness. <laughs> he wears a long piece of cotton cloth wound around and between his legs. Lungi dance. <laughs> there, <laughs> the front of the legs is well covered, but the back is ridiculously bare. So, it's like... Um, the Scots or the Irish have their kilts. Even uh, Mr. Uh, Brad Pitt wore a skirt to his uh, premiere for Bullet Train. Alright, so... There is something effeminate and babyish about it. You simply cannot imagine a sol soldier with such garlands of cloth between his legs. Many wear a shirt over this or a or a European jacket. It is quaint but not very masculine. The northern type of costume is Persian and looks fine and manly. The garland ty type also, I mean, just from uh, if you live there <laughs> in India, uh, it is most of the places humid as fuck. So you want to be ease and cool. <laughs> okay. It is quaint, but okay. The northern type, the garland type is chiefly southern, perhaps because of the matriarchal trend which prevails in the south. The garland looks like a sort of overgrown diaper. It is an essentially unwarlike dress and suits the pacifist mentality of the Hindu perfectly. A real fight. It's like, that's a great uh, mentality to have, really. The pacifist mentality, like, instead of, instead of having, you know, two world wars and and then basically trying to start another one how about how about we all kind of pacify the fuck out man instead of trying to kill each other a real fight in such a contrivance is well nigh impossible the combatants would be trapped in no time by the many circumvolutions of their ridiculous sheets yet they are free with words and gesture gestures but when you are expecting the worst they confine themselves to attacking the other's shirt and diaper I once watched two boys of about eight or nine having a heated quarrel over a game. They came to blows. We can all remember pretty well what a fight between boys at that age means. But the performance of the Hindu boys was really worth seeing. They struck out violently, but the dangerous-looking fists remained miraculously arrested about an inch from the enemy's face, face. And afterwards, it was exactly as if they had had a really good fight. They are profoundly civilized. Let me read this again. This is Carl Jung. They are profoundly civilized. This was in the South. The Mohammedan element in the North is probably much nearer the real stuff when it comes to a fight. They were profoundly civilized. Unlike the savages. 
unlike the barbarians. The impression of softness, I'm I'm just I'm just busting everyone's balls, okay? Everybody has assholes everywhere. Everybody has problems, everybody fights. I'm just saying on a mass scale though, it is not there's a trend. The big wars have to have have a trend, okay? Um the impression of softness that the Hindu conveys points to a predominance of the feminine element in the family, presumably of the mother. It seems to be a style which is dependent on old matriarchal traditions. The educated Hindu was very much the character of the family boy of the good son who knows that he has to deal with the mother and moreover knows how to do it. But one gets much the same impression from the women. They show a studied and stylish kind of modesty and inconspicuousness, which immediately gives you the feeling of dealing with an extremely domesticated and socialized person. There is no harshness or arrogance, no mannishness or stridency in their voice. This is a most agreeable contrast to certain European women I have known, whose strained, over-loud, and spastic voices betray a peculiarly forced and unnatural attitude. I had many opportunities to study the English voice in India. Voices are treacherous. They reveal far too much. You marvel at the fantastic efforts people make to sound gay, fresh, welcoming, enterprising, jolly, benevolent, full of good comradeship, and so on. Jung, you cracked me up, man. (laughs) And you know it is merely an attempt to cover up the real truth, which is very much the reverse. <laughs> yeah, everyone just wears a mask, man. It's a show. It's a... Okay. It makes you tired listening to those unnatural sounds, and you long for somebody to say something unkind or brutally offensive. Yeah, you want something authentic. You... When people act, we all know. Okay, well you... Okay. You cannot help noticing how a great number of perfectly nice and decent Englishmen elaborately imitate a he-man voice, God knows why. It sounds as if they were trying to impress the world with their throaty, throaty rumbling tones, or as if they were addressing a political meaning which has to be convinced of the profound honesty and sincerity of the speaker. The usual brand is the bass voice of the colonel, for instance, or the master of a household of numerous children and service servants who must be duly impressed. The father Christmas voice is a special variety, usually affected by academically trained specimens. I discovered that particularly terrific boomers were quite modest and decent chaps, with a noticeable feeling of inferiority. Interesting you use the word boomers. Hmm. <laughs> what a superhuman burden it is to be the overlords of a continent like India. Yeah, this is what I'm talking about. The, the so-called white man's burden. It's like, no wonder if you think that civilizing the world is all on you, on your shoulders. I mean, that's a lot of pressure, bro. <laughs> Do you think you're up for it? Do you think you're prepared? Do you think you know enough about the places you try to dominate? I mean, obviously doesn't look like it, uh, right? It doesn't really look like it. Okay. 
The Indians speak without affection, affectation. They represent nothing. They belong to the 360 million people of India. The women represent less than nothing. They belong to large families, incidentally and geographically, living in a country called India. And you have to adapt yourself to the family and know how to talk and how to behave. When 25 to 30 members of a family are crowded together in a small house with the grandmother on top, that teaches you to speak modestly, carefully, politely. It explains that small twittering voice and that flower-like behavior. The crowding together in families has the contrary effect with us. It makes people nervous, irritable, rough, and even violent. But India takes the family seriously. There is no amateurishness or sentimentality about it. It is understood to be the indispensable form of life, inescapable, necessary, and self-evident. I mean, honestly, the West just feels like a long, prolonged story of the prodigal son. Just saying, it needs a religion to break this law and to make homelessness the first step to saintliness. It certainly seems as if Indians would be unusually pleasant and easy to live with, particularly the women. And if the style were the whole man, Indian life would be almost ideal. But softness of manners and sweetness of voice are also a part of secrecy and diplomacy. I guess Indians are just human, and so no generalization is quite true. Yeah, nobody's perfect. No culture is perfect. Nobody. Because perfect is an image, it's not real. Perfect is illusion. <laughs> Reality is chaos and order. Perfect is thinking in your head that it's not. Everything's just order. No, there's chaos too, man. That's why you have to be strong mentally, physically, because the world you can't make everything safe. That's basically what. Fucking all these fairy tales about Sleeping Beauty, all this shit. Buddha, the 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 king, the ruler, was trying to make the world as safe as possible for the, for his child. But sooner or later, you're gonna have to face chaos. And would you rather be prepared and tough and strong enough to face it, or are you gonna keep running like Simba before? He had to face his reality and go back home to his kingdom, right? Okay. As a matter of fact, you stub your toes time and again against a peculiar obliqueness when you ask for definite information. You often find then that people are less concerned with your question than with deliberations about your possible motives or about how it would be possible. To wriggle out of a tight corner without getting hurt, overcrowding has surely much to do with this widespread and very characteristic defect in the Indian character. For only the art of deception can preserve the privacy of the individual in a crowd. The woman's whole manner is directed towards the mother as well as the man. To the former, she is daughter; to the latter, the woman whose skillful behavior gives him. A reasonable chance to feel like a man. At least I did not meet a single battleship so typical of the Western drawing room, the sight of which makes a man feel about as comfortable as a mouse drowning before breakfast in cold water. Damn, 
The Indians mean and are meant to live in India. Therefore, they have settled down to a degree of domestication which we cannot attain even with the aid of ideals and frantic moral efforts. Our migrations have not yet come to an end. It was only a short while ago that the Anglo-Saxons immigrated from northern Germany to their new homeland. The Normans arrived there from Scandinavia via, via northern France quite a while later, and it is much the same with practically every nation in Europe. Our motto is still Ubi Bene Ibi Patria. Because of this truth, we are all fervent patriots. Because we still can and will wander, we imagine that we can live more or less anywhere, not yet convinced that we ought to be able to get along with one another in closely packed families. We feel that we can afford to quarrel, for there is still good open country out west if things come to the worst. At least it seems so. But it is no longer quite true. Even the Englishman is not settled in India. He is really condemned to serve his term there and to make the best of it. Hence, all those hopeful, jolly, eager, energetic, powerful voices issue from people who are thinking and dreaming of spring in Sussex. Yeah, then they wanted to go back. What India can teach us. India lies between the Asiatic North and the Pacific South, between Tibet and Ceylon. Ceylon is Sri Lanka. India ends abruptly at the foothills of the Himalaya and at Adams Bridge. What? Adams Bridge? I gotta look that up. At one end, a Mongolian world begins, and at the other, the paradise of a South Sea island. Sri Lanka is as strangely different from India as is Tibet. Curiously enough, at either end, one finds the spore of the elephant, as the Pali Canon calls the teaching of the Lord Buddha. Spore of the elephant. What the fuck does that mean? Why has India lost her greatest light, Buddha's path of redemption, that glorious synthesis of philosophy and opus divinum? It is common knowledge that mankind can never remain on an apex of illumination and spiritual endeavor. Buddha was an ultimately Buddha was an untimely intruder, upsetting the historical process which afterwards got the better of him. Indian religion is like a vimana or pagoda. The gods climb over one another like ants from the elephants carved on the base to the abstract lotus which crowns the top of the building. Talking about the tree of life volcano. In the long run the gods become philosophical also the your inner world also. The gods become philosophical con concepts. In the long run, the gods become philosophical concepts. Buddha, a spiritual pioneer for the whole world, said and tried to make it true that the enlightened man is even the teacher and redeemer of his gods, not their stupid denier, as Western enlightenment will have it. This was obviously too much because the Indian mind was not at all ready to integrate the gods to such an extent as to make them psychologically dependent upon man's mental condition. How Buddha himself could obtain such insight without losing himself in a complete mental inflation borders on a miracle. But any genius is a miracle. Buddha dis disturbed the historical process 
by interfering with the slow transformation of the gods into ideas. The, the true genius nearly always intrudes and disturbs. He speaks to a temporal world out of a world eternal. Thus he says the wrong things at the right time. <laughs> Beautiful. Eternal truths are never true at any given moment in history. The process of transformation has to make a halt in order to digest and assimilate the utterly impractical things that the genius has produced from the storehouse of eternity. Yet the genius is the healer of his time because anything he reveals of eternal truth is healing. The remote goal of the transformation process, however, is very much what Buddha intended, but to get there is possible neither in other generation nor in ten. It obviously takes much longer, thousands of years at all events, since the intended transformation cannot be realized without an enormous development of human consciousness. It can only be believed, which is what Buddha's as well as Christ's followers obviously did, assuming, as believers always do, that belief is the whole thing. I think belief is a bad word, man. <laughs> belief is a great thing, to be sure, but it is a substitute for a conscious reality which the Christians wisely relegate to a life in the hereafter. This hereafter is really the intended future of mankind anticipated by religious intuition. Buddha had disappeared Buddha has disappeared from Indian life and religion more than we could ever imagine Christ disappearing in the aftermath of some future catastrophe to Christianity, more even than the Greco-Roman religions have disappeared from present-day Christianity. Well, I'm telling you, Jesus H. Christ was a horse, which is a symbol for the human mind. India is not ungrateful to her master minds. I mean, I'll give you, a, I'll even give you, the the an example of a horse god in Hinduism and Buddhism. It's a, it's a Hayagriva. Hayagriva is a horse god, I think in Hinduism. Okay. Even Buddhism has horse gods. Even King Solomon's, uh, magical, lore, stories, books and stuff. King Solomon has has magic books apparently he has characters that are basically like the uh you know the four dark kings from uh the lord of the rings movies they're basically like demon kings in the underworld the four horsemen basically that's what they are the four horsemen in the bible and Lord of the Rings, those those demon kings, it's it's, it's from King Solomon's, uh, I think, uh, um, stories. Okay, okay. Anyways, India is not ungrateful to her masterminds. There is a consider considerable revival of interest in classical philosophy. Universities like Calcutta and Benares have important philosophy departments. Yet the main emphasis is laid on classical Hindu philosophy and its vast Sanskrit literature. The Pali Canon is not precisely within their scope. Buddha does not represent a proper philosophy. He challenges man. This is not exactly, this is not exactly what philosophy wants. It, like any other science, needs a good deal of intellectual free play, undisturbed, 
by moral and human entanglements, but, but also small and fragmentary people must be able to do something about it without getting fatally involved in big issues far beyond their powers of endurance and accomplishment. This is on the right road after all, though, though it is indeed a longissima via. The divine impatience of a genius may disturb or even upset the small man, but after a few generations he will reassert himself by sheer force of numbers, and this too seems to be right. I'm now going to say something which may offend my Indian friends, but actually no offense is intended. I have, so it seems to me, observed the peculiar fact that an Indian, in as much as he is really Indian, does not think, at least not what we call think. He rather perceives the thought. He resembles the primitive in this respect. I do not say that he is primitive, but that the process of his thinking reminds me of the primitive way of thought production. The primitive's reasoning is mainly an unconscious function, and he perceives its results. We should expect such a peculiarity in any civilization which has enjoyed an almost unbroken continuity from primitive times. Our Western evolution from a primitive level was suddenly interpreted interrupted by the invasion of a psychology and spirituality belonging to a much higher level of civilization. Our case was not so bad as that of the uh, Negroes or the Polynesians who found themselves suddenly confronted with the infinitely higher civilization of the white man, but in essence it was the same. Once again, this is this comparison... <laughs> Is like, okay, we were stopped in the midst. What higher, what higher civilization? All that means is fossil fuels. The West were the first ones to to use fossil fuels to basically it's like a NOS to uh, development. Okay, but then look at the problems it has created. So it used fossil fuels to get ahead in development, but then now it's caused all these problems. We were stopped in the midst of a still barbarous polytheism, which was eradicated or suppressed in the course of centuries and not so very long ago. I suppose that unless all this climate change and all this pollution shit is all bullshit... <laughs> okay... Uh, I suppose that this fact has given a peculiar twist to the Western mind. Our mental existence was transformed into something which it had not yet reached and which it could not yet truly be. And this could be only, and this could only be brought about by a disassociation between the conscious part of the mind and the unconscious. The way I look at it, in the Western way of thinking, perspective, life, they go from I think they take more of like a third-person perspective. Um, let me hold up. I'm going to take that back because <clears throat> I don't think it's a West or East thing. I think it's a person thing. The whole thing of... Some people just play first-person character. You know, they're just always in character. 
some people um, are aware that they are a character and so they kind of play from the third person perspective or live life from a third person perspective so it's like it's 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 different and i guess that's that that's based on <clears throat> the person because i have seen and experienced met these types these types of people everywhere you know it's not just one so yeah i think it's a person thing anyways We were stopped in the... Okay, blah, blah, I suppose... Okay, our mental existence was transformed into something which... Okay, read that. Okay, it was a liberation of consciousness from the burden of irrationality and instinctive impulsiveness at the expense of the totally totality of the individual. Man became split into a conscious and unconscious personality. conscious personality could be domesticated because it was separated from the natural and primitive man. Thus, we became highly disciplined, organized, and rational on one side, but the other side remained a suppressed primitive cut off from education and civilization. Yes, yeah, the story of Cain and Abel, man, the bicameral mind. Left hemisphere, right hemisphere, it's music, it's chaos and order. This explains our many relapses into the most ap appalling barbarity and in also and it also explains the really terrible fact that the higher we climb the mountain of scientific and technical achievement the more dangerous and diabolical becomes the misuse of our inventions. Yeah, because science is fine, we can have all this great technology, but at the end it comes down to human hearts. Some motherfucker will still have to be in charge of pressing that button or whatever. Every last decision comes down to a human, right? And if that's the case, humans are not always rational and logical. We are emotional animals. This is the dilemma. We can make the best shit, but uh, we in the end will become the problem. Hence, if we do make AI, let's say which is basically a symbol manifestation of order, then we, the humans, become the chaos for that, for that order. So that order is going to get rid of us. Right? Isn't that all the stories of fucking robots and AI and all this shit? Yeah, because humans are... Walking order and chaos. Okay. This explains... Okay, blah, blah, blah. Think of the great triumph of the human mind, the power to fly. We have accomplished the age-old dream of humanity. And, we, and think of the bombing raids of modern warfare. Is this what civilization means? Huh? Is it not rather a convincing demonstration of the fact that when our mind went up to conquer the skies, our other man, that suppressed barbarous individual, went down to hell? This is Carl Jung. And think of the bombing raids of modern warfare. God bless America and God bless Israel. Is this what civilization means? Is it not rather a convincing demonstration of the fact that when our mind went up to conquer the skies, 
our other man, that suppressed barbarous individual, Barabbas, 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 went down to hell? Certainly our civilization can be proud of its achievements, yet we have to be ashamed of ourselves. This is Carl Jung. This surely is not the only way in which man can become civilized. At all events, it is not an ideal way. One could think of another more satisfactory possibility. Mushrooms, DMT, peyote, all kinds of stuff you can take to break out of your ego perspective, your horse blinders, and look at the universe and look where you fit into that picture. But that's what men are afraid of. Man is afraid of his own mind. Man is, is afraid of finding out what's inside himself. It's easier to project it on, on weaker people and fuck them up. Because you're such a strong, civilized man. Okay, this surely is not the only way which... Man can become civilized. At all events, it is not an ideal way. One could think, okay, by burdening the conscious... Okay, instead of differentiating only one side of man, one could differentiate the whole man. By burdening, burdening the conscious man with the earthbound weight of his primitive side, one could avoid that fatal dissociation between an upper and a lower half. Yeah, all these uh, old temples that have... All the pornographic images on the outside. The temple is a symbol of the human psyche, of, 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 of the individual. So until you have satiated, calmed down, uh, not dominated, but more after you have mastered your, you know, sexual desires, your animal side, your 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 savage side, then you can enter into the temple, into the holy of holies, which is what your heart it's it's all symbolism of you. Until you know because it's just logical because first you gotta take care of the animal. If you're fucking hungry, tired, uh thirsty, you gotta take care of those needs first, right? Then, like Maslow's hierarchy, then once all that's taken care of, then you can start to think of other things, right? So, this is raising your consciousness, okay? These leaders know this shit. They don't want people to even get past the basic shit of just eating food, having a place to stay. It's just basic shit. They... They want them to stay on that level of the pyramid and no moving up. So how are we going to raise our consciousness, huh? How are we going to do this? I mean, we can. Uh, surely, obviously, the, the ones on top of this pyramid need to raise their consciousness, right? Okay. Where was I? By burdening, okay, of course it would be no mean tour de force to experiment with the white man of today along these lines. It would obviously lead to devilishly intricate moral and intellectual problems. But if the white man does not succeed 
in destroying his own race with his brilliant inventions, he will eventually have to settle down to a desperately serious course of self-education. This is what I'm saying. Why don't we all, all the leaders, just go, just go on a fucking road trip or a bicycle trip or a motorbike diaries trip to wherever outside their own fucking palaces they have if jeff bezos got dropped off in the amazon jungle (laughs) and and just live there for i don't know whatever self-education like find out who you are money is not is not the thing power is not the thing it's like starving and bombing women children and then weaker people than you is not the thing you need to find you need to find your soul my friend we need to smash that heart that stone heart of yours you need to smash it Rumi said you gotta break it till it fucking opens we need to bring we need to bring back someone to live in that house to have the lights on man it's been too dark Okay, whatever the ultimate fate of the white man may be, we can at least behold one example of a civilization which has brought every essential trace of primitivity with it, embracing the whole man from top to bottom. Well, another thing Mr. Jung could have, hopefully it probably would have helped him back in the day, was the book, The Invention of the White Race by Theodore W. Allen. There is no white race. It's an invention. We are all one love, one race. What what race, man? All these other animals have different species. Horses have different species. Lions have different species of lions. Why the fuck is he? Why? It's because it's a horse race. It's not a human race. It's a horse race. Humans aren't horses, <laughs> right? So why is it a human race? It's a horse race. That's why Bob Marley kept saying the day you stop racing is the day you win the race. The day you stop running is the day you win the race. Because what is race, man? Huh? You have white color horses, black color horses, brown horses, gray horses, spotted horses. (laughs) You have striped zebras. (laughs) It's like different species. What is this race thing, man? We all come from the same fuck, same fucking stock of no more than five, six thousand people, who all survived some major catastrophe back in the day. We all come from the same gene pool. Here we are killing each other, brother killing brother. Like, come on. Okay. India's civilization and psychology resemble her temples, which represent the universe in their sculptures, including man and man and all his aspects and activities, whether a saint or brute. That is presumably the reason why India seems so dreamlike. One gets pushed back into the unconscious, into that unredeemed, uncivilized, aboriginal world of which we only dream since our, since our consciousness denies it. India represents the other way of civilizing man, the way without suppression, without violence, without rationalism. You see them there side by side in the same town, in the same street, in the same temple within the same square mile, the most highly cultivated mind and, pr- and the primitive. Yeah, 
is beautiful. The diversity is beautiful. In the mental makeup of the most spirit, it's it's not even diversity. As you can see, the whole spectrum of consciousness represented in all its wondrous colors. Okay. In the mental makeup of the most spiritual, you discern the traits of the living primitive, and in the melancholy eyes of the illiterate, half-naked villager, you divine an unconscious knowledge of mysterious truths. I mean, for, especially for writers, if you want some material, just fucking do a trip to India, man. You will have so much material. Okay. Um, I say all this in order to explain what I mean by not thinking. I could just as well say, Thank heaven there is a man left who has not learned to think, but is still able to perceive his thoughts as if they were visions or living things a man who has transformed or is still going to transform his gods into visible thoughts based upon the reality of the instincts. He has rescued his gods and they live with him. It is true that this is an irrational life full of crudeness, gruesomeness, misery, disease, and death, yet somehow complete, satisfactory, and of an unfathomable emotional beauty. It is true, yeah, in the West you can just watch movies of other people doing that shit while they milk ya and in let's say other places you live it okay it is true that the logical processes of india are funny and it is bewildering to see how fragments of western science live peacefully side by side with what we short-sightedly would call would call superstitions Indians do not mind seemingly intolerable contradictions. If they exist, they are the peculiarity of such thinking, and man is not responsible for them. He does not make them, since thoughts appear by themselves. The Indian does not fish out infinitesimal details from the universe. His ambition is to have a vision of the whole. I agree. I agree. That is so accurate. The Indian does not fish out infinitesimal details from the universe. His ambition is to have a vision of the whole. I mean, I'm not saying there's that also, but I'm just saying, yeah, it's like you want to see the whole picture, right? He does not yet know that you can screw the living world up tightly between two concepts. Did you ever stop to think how much of the conqueror, not to say thief or robber, lies in that very term concept? Did you ever stop to think how much of the conqueror lies in that very term concept? It comes from the Latin, okay, concipere, concipere, to take something by grasping it thoroughly. <laughs> wow. That is how we get at the world. But Indian thinking is an increase of vision and not a predatory raid into the yet unconquered realms of nature. If you want to learn the greatest lesson India can teach you, wrap yourself in the cloak of your moral superior superiority 
Go to the Black Pagoda of Konarak. Sit down in the shadow of the mighty ruin that is still covered with the most amazing collection of obscenities. Read Murray's cunning old handbook for India, which tells you how to be properly shocked by this lamentable state of affairs, and how you should go into the temples in the evening because in the lamplight they look, if possible, more, and how beautifully wicked. And then analyze carefully and with the utmost honesty all your reactions, feelings, and thoughts. It will take you quite a while, but in the end, if you have done good work, you will have learned something about yourself and about the white man in general, which you have probably never heard from anyone else. I think if you can afford it, a trip to India is on the, on the whole most edifying and from a psychological point of view most advi advisable, although it may give you considerable headaches. That I do agree also. <laughs> It's a challenge. You want a challenge? Go to India, man. You want to see what you're made of? Go to India. India will tell you what, who you are, man. That is the power of, and beauty of India. All right. Peace, bitches. Peace.